Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. It's an exciting time here at The Audible, Bruce. There's a lot going on. People who are uh, downloading this on iTunes are probably seeing, for the first time, the sweet new logo we have. I know. It kind of reminds me of like one of those throwback things where you remember like the posed pictures you'd see in media guides where like the defensive lineman would, would look, look like Superman and the other the uh, you know the linebacker would be in these posed you know look like he's trying to trying to run karaoke. It, it was just a different kind of look, and I I thought that was very it's cool. retro. It's very retro. Yeah. And then you know obviously we had another successful week of the Audible on Facebook Live. And the other thing I wanted to mention. We, we we had him on here a few weeks ago, and we joke all the time about how Rob Stone is a, a huge fan of the Audible. But he really, really is a devoted fan to the point where, over the weekend when I was in L.A., he got the inspiration to, uh, with help from his friend Alexi Lawless, record some new drops for the Audible, possibly even a new a candidate, a, uh, possibly a candidate for a new intro segment. Should I love we? it. So why don't we why don't we throw that out there right now and the people can vote whether they think this should maybe become a, re- a recurring uh, feature. He also has another one that we'll save for later. Just know ahead of time that Rob is a huge heavy metal fan. Okay, hit it. We're changing things up. It's the Audible. So I don't know. Could you see that replacing our regular theme music at some point? We have oh that's right we have the old Fox theme music. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe, I mean, you know, maybe I'll be update, keep things fresh. Sure. I, I Look, we're trying to change, shake things up a little bit. The new logo. Um, I'm on board. I, appreci- I definitely appreciate the support we have gotten from uh, my neighbor down there in the, in the rich side of town. So. And by the way, he said he's got five more ideas in his head. So I look forward to that. There was uh, We have a lot to get to here. It's uh, Monday after week two is in the books. And what wasn't the, the most memorable slate of games certainly uh, plenty came out of it and first i want to get to the game you were at which probably flew completely under the radar but uh you were at baylor this weekend which makes for kind of unique timing or interesting timing because on saturday morning uh espn ran for the first time tom rinaldi's sit down with art bryles where he apologizes for something. He, he didn't make quite clear what he was apologizing for. Anyway, it was not well received, at least on social media. And I'm just, as soon as it happened, I texted you. I was like, is it really awkward to be in Waco right now when this is happening? Yeah, it was definitely a, a awkward couple of days there. And I'll, I'll be honest, before we get into the specifics of the Bryle stuff, which I, I think we should talk about, um, you know, I had a unique dynamic here because I had commented and reported on the Baylor and the Bryles story a lot this off season, and so you go into a place where there, where basically his entire staff is still there. Um, so it wasn't like the most affectionate. You know, it was like going in there. It was like you could kind of tell, you know, what are you doing here? Kind of vibe, and that was probably different from any place I, I felt like I've ever been, you know, certainly in the sideline role, just because most of my peers who do that job, I'm not sure how much, you know, reporting they're doing on stories like this, you know, in the, you know, it's usually different kinds of media work on those stories. Uh, I will say this though, I have, you know, the utmost respect for Jim Grove, uh, how he treated me specifically, uh, was, was terrific. This, this, 
past week. You know, the AD there, Mac Rhodes, who's the new AD, who I've known before also, was great. And I, I give a lot of credit to their SID, Heath Nielsen, because he was in a tricky spot. You know, I mean, it's you look, you were one of the first college football columnists to really take our brows to task in the wake of a lot of these stories that had come out. And then after that, and certainly when Bryles and the AD and, and the president were forced out, there was a lot of other media weighing in uh, very critically. And so I think that, you know, when you talk to people inside that program, you know, they certainly have mixed feelings on people. I, I think they would acknowledge even the people who are the, the staunchest defenders of our Bryles would acknowledge that the university and the athletic department certainly mishandled a lot of things really and a lot of important things and mishandled them really badly but you know there's a there's a big portion of people there who felt like uh you know that that the media had agendas to Baylor now I think you and I can talk about this for a quick second I mean the part that I always scratch my head at is you know, look, we work for Fox. It's not it's not like Fox is like, oh, yeah, we want to take Baylor down. I mean, it's it helps Fox, to be honest, if Baylor was doing well. Uh, now, some of these other things, I don't buy that the theory that outside the lines was somehow going after Baylor and pursuing this story so vigorously because, you know, the part of the company is tied to the Longhorn Network. I just I just don't buy that connection. Well, now, you you got to have if you're a fan base of a program that that um, has gone through something like this, you got to find somebody else to blame. So suddenly ESPN, that, that, you got to have a conspiracy theory, right? Because it can't possibly just be that the media uh, got a hold of a, a something, um, you know, awful happening and, and tried to find out the truth behind it. It's got to be a conspiracy theory. So that is that uh, that ESPN tried to bring down Baylor. Because Baylor was hurting the Longhorn Network uh, with all its success. And now, in part two of that theory, I, I saw after the interview, is that by giving him this uh, forum to do his apology tour, that now they're trying to make sure he'll land somewhere else, maybe in, in the SEC, since they have the SEC network, and, uh, and, and make somebody good there. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, I've always thought that one reason that story exploded like it did, beyond the actual circumstances of it, is frankly the media there never caught wind of it either never caught wind or didn't report most of this stuff as it was happening um i mean for, so it came for, out in a flurry so it came out in a flurry and i think that part of it i think because it wasn't that way and maybe there was some you know some legal issues with law enforcement of how that was handled i think that the worst thing you could say to say about some kind of scandal is that a cover-up was involved and I think because of that, it made it, you know, seem like, oh, my God, what's going on there kind of a story. And that added to the outrage. And it was just like it just took off. I mean, it took off in a way that usually uh, those other stories don't really kind of resonate. This one this one obviously did. Well, the two tipping points I always felt, I mean, when it first when Baylor's problems first came on the national radar was when. Samu Gawachu was standing trial for rape and nobody had ever reported that he was in any sort of trouble. You know, it wasn't usually a guy, a football player at a major program gets arrested and you know about it then um, or accused of a crime. You know about it then. He went through the entire system 
right up until the actual trial before anybody reported on that happening. And so that felt like, a, you know, as you said, people think that some, somebody's covering something up. And then the shot – I mean at that point, the outside the lines had gone, done a couple of uh, pretty good extensive investigations. And then it was actually a uh, Texas-affiliated reporter, I believe, who uncovered That's the that. shot. And yeah. and yeah, that you can you know that adds to the feeling of there's an agenda there. Certainly, well, certainly I I can tell you that no fan base was more vocal during all of this than Texas's. I mean, they were constantly sending me articles and and hey, you should. We had a guy emailing the Audible every week. Why aren't you guys talking more about this? He's a huge Texas fan. So, and and look, the post mortem on this thing is Texas got what you know five or six players, who, right? left the recruiting class of Baylor and ended up there. But I don't think that's why people were, I mean, I, okay. So the Texas reporter, that's one thing, but that's not why the national media was reporting on it. And so when he uncovered that police report about Sean Oakman that had never come to light in the three years since it happened, then, I mean, that's after that was after that, that I wrote my first big column because it just felt like there was, there was going to be no end to this. Like just new stuff kept coming up. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. there was one of the, there, I think one of the things that also makes this story, you know, very tricky is because nothing happens in a vacuum, right? So, you know, here's the perspective. You go, you, you know, you just talk to some of the Baylor kids. Seth Russell was on a mission work in a foreign country helping kids, you know, and, and disadvantaged people when he found out the news. Uh, we met with Ryan Reed, who's a, was the leader of their secondary. I mean, this this kid was, you know, had, had some sleepless nights living in a car. He was told, you know, talked about eating toast for dinner. Uh, I mean, he's, he, you know, he had a pretty rough past to get to. Well, he graduated and wants to go in the medical field because he feels like he can help people. And so it's not like, you know, the broad brush part of, you know, if you say anything positive about people within Baylor, I think – you know, you're going to get some backlash to that as well. And I think that there was a lot of frustration from people around Baylor going, hey, you know what? Yeah, we get we have you know major issues here, but that doesn't mean, you know, most of the kids we have are not bad kids. And, and that's I, so, true. That was true with Penn State, too. You know, the players there, not a single player was there. Anything at Penn State. Had nothing to do with it. And yet you couldn't write anything about Penn State's current football team without getting back. They should be banned from the sport. You know, they protected a child molester. Uh, anyway, with Baylor. Well, the thing I want to add, just a little post note on this. So, so one of the players at uh, who got in trouble recently at uh, at Baylor, Remy Hamad, Rami Hamad, I think that's how pronounce his name. Uh, so it had come out that he had, you know, he had had some uh, some issues last year, but still played. What I was told when I was down there over the weekend was his, you know, those things, had, those charges had been looked into and he was actually cleared by Baylor's title, uh, title nine office. And so that part of it, you know, people were like, wait, he played too. And he had these egregious things that, you know, he was being looked into. But the part that I don't know if it got really out was that Baylor's title nine office, which is the protocol that, you know, this, all these schools are supposed to follow looked into it and cleared him of it. So again, you know, like I said, nothing happens in a vacuum with this stuff. So let's get to the part people care about most. Art Bryles, is he going to coach again? Is he going to coach next year? 
it's clear that there's some sort of orchestrated campaign going on now because for the longest time he didn't really do anything to um, to express remorse. Then all of a sudden on the same day, funny how these things happen. A local Baylor, a local Waco, I might as well call it local Baylor. A local Waco affiliate puts out a quote unquote investigative report based on inside sources, all anonymous, that supposedly go into some great detail about how Mark Bryles has been wronged in all this and it was all uh, blamed on him. It's the board trying to run him out. It took about two minutes of internet background research to figure out that the reporter in that story had on her Facebook page a picture of herself interviewing Art Bryles and talking about how heartbroken she was that this happened to him. So you talk about agendas. There's your agenda on that one. That story went out a half hour before ESPN started teasing this sit down. The part of the part of that piece that I had the most trouble getting around. And to me, it was like it was mentioned in there as if Pepper Hamilton was hired. And the message from somebody high up at Baylor was we got to find a way to get rid of this guy, Art Ryle. And my disconnect with that is Art Ryle is the most successful football coach this school's ever had. You just built him a big and fancy new stadium on top of which the billionaire whose name the stadium is for Drayton McLean is still tight with Art Bryles. It, you know, I have a hard time getting around. Yeah. Could there have been a, could there have been some frustration from some board people about, well, football's getting too big. Yeah. There's a, there could be some of that. I find it hard to, to believe that we got to find a get way to get rid of this guy. I think it was the exact opposite. I think they try try it up until the eleventh hour to justify keeping him. Oh, we can blame this all on Ken Starr. We can blame this all on Ian McCaw. And at the end of the day, you just you couldn't get around the fact that that Pepper Hamilton finding of facts said that the football staff endangered the the campus community. So somebody's got to pay the price for that, and it's the head coach. Well, let me ask you now. So you watched the interview. We both did. Uh, what's your takeaway for our Bryles? Do you a do you do you believe him and b do you believe he deserves a chance to be a head coach in a major football program next year? I'm sure he feels bad about it. I'm sure he is genuine when he says that he feels awful that any of these women were violated. But I still don't think he grasps what. And he also says, you know, of course we bear some responsibility for it. These were players were, or I bear some responsibility for it. These players were, you know, representatives of my program, but I don't think he fully grasps how deep the problem went. And he had some comments on there that were really unfortunate about, you know, Tom Rinaldi asked if, if the victims were here in the room right now, what do you think would happen? And he said, oh, hopefully we would, um, you know, we'd have a cry. We, we basically said we would have a little bit of a cry and then we would hug it out, which is just so insensitive, like to think that a rape victim would want to hug it out with our Bryles. Um, I think that, you know, this coming coaching carousel, there will certainly be fan bases who of, of programs that especially ones that where they've struggled on offense who will say, yeah, of course, we should go out and try to hire our Bryles. And I know there's already people out there. I know Pete Thamel wrote about it last, a couple weeks ago, maybe last week, uh, that there's just widespread skepticism around the industry that or, or just guess widespread sentiment that, of course, somebody's going to hire him. I don't think so. Not this coming season. Maybe when there's more distance. Anyone, it. Or you don't think any power five? Uh, certainly not any power five. And You say definitely not, huh? Definitely not any power. Not this coming year. It's too 
people have to realize that at the end of the day, you know, the AD might want the coach, but the university president has to sign off on it. I just can't see a university president uh, signing off on a coach who six months earlier was his staff. Like I just, it's that, that line is so damning about, you know, safety, endangering safe, the student body's safety. How could a university president sign off on that? How could he turn around and justify that to the female students on his campus? Um, By the way, you're saying, you're saying, you're saying he all the time. One of the places that I think might consider him if the circumstances play out would be a place where the university president's actually a female. It's, at Houston, where he worked, mm-hmm. uh, where he's close to one of the biggest boosters still, uh, you know, that's if, and I, I think it's a big if, but if Tom Herman were to leave, as much as I like Todd Orlando and think so highly of him and, and Major Applewhite, the coordinators, my gut is after uh, the president there, you know, signed off on going from Kevin Sumlin to Tony Levine, one of his assistants, I'm not sure that they would go that route and Art Riles would be sitting out there again where he's where one of the biggest boosters that UH has is one of his guys um now again how would she spin that to the female students on her campus I don't know I, I honestly don't know and I when you say spin I think actually a, as big an issue as anything and this is why I'm I'm skeptical of that of him getting hired this winter is the issue of what happens if more stuff comes out? Is there more Sean Oakman stuff that's going to come out? Then it becomes your story. If you're, if you're, you know, if he, if you've already introduced them in a press conference and now there's more of these stories that come out. The one uh, thing Tom Rinaldi didn't ask, at least in the part we saw, cause I know that was not the full interview that I would love to ask is why did you recruit these guys who got kicked off of their old schools, who got in trouble at other schools, why did, why would you justify bringing them into your program? Because those were the guys, in a couple of cases, who went on to commit these crimes. And and that's, you know, I, I think his defenders are clinging to this very narrow uh, interpretation of what he's being accused of, which is he didn't cover anything up. He didn't cover anything up. Well, that I mean, may be true, but... Would you ask the same question of Nick Saban? I mean, he took... He took a player who had big, you know, big issues out of, you know, at Georgia. He took and he's gotten criticized for that. You know, they're not immune from criticism of that. I you know Sean Oakman was was became a feel good story at one point during his time there because nobody knew about these accusations earlier in his career, and now he's charged with sexual assault. Um, you know, that didn't come up in the interview. It's really, you know, Baylor apologists want to f- try to focus on just the two guys. There are only two guys who actually got, you know, convicted or prosecuted. Well, just because a female doesn't report, uh, just because a rape victim doesn't report it to the police doesn't mean it didn't happen. And I think that's a, uh, that's another thing people maybe don't fully understand. Um, I, you know, ultimately I can't say, I'm not going to say he's never going to be a head coach again, although I did say that in the initial Aftermath. I mean, I'm sure with some distance, this could happen. I think the only way it happens between now and late November, early December, is if some something new comes out that vindicates him. That that there's some sort of eyewitness account or defendant proof that no, he actually did try to do something about this. I haven't seen that to this point. All I've seen is a bunch of deflection and blaming it on the board that was trying to run him out, or the media that's out to get them, the Longhorn Network's out to get them. I haven't seen any. Well, here's what he tried to do that he's not getting any credit for. Yeah, I mean, 
you know what, like after one of the criticisms a lot of people had, and I actually, I did find mom show the other day and this is before they, they had just run a snippet of the interview. And I said, well, you know, I would like to know what he's sorry for. And Feinbaum said, well, we've seen the 30 page transcript or whatever. It's not in there. Now people will, other people will point out and Tim Brando, when I was in the car, we talked on the way to the stadium, we talked about this, this, you know, this interview. And he said, well, you know, can he, can he say, and I think USA Today and Nicole Auerbach may have a column on this. Can he say specifically what he's apologizing for? Because then all of a sudden it makes him culpable with more lawsuits. There were definitely some answers there where you could tell he was leery of that. Um, probably had been advised about that. We should yeah. probably turn the page here to some of the things that happened on the football field this past weekend. Can we start uh, some? Uh, can we start with with the? Uh, I, I, I want to call it the feel good story, but it was it was rooted in in, in error, and it's it's uh, Central Michigan knocking off Oklahoma State. It actually happened on FS1. It would have been the broadcast debut of our pal Steve Sarkeesian, but it wasn't. Um, oh man, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. In fact, so we I, had Petros on last week, and we kind of jokingly teased the game, and it turned out to be the most eventful ending of the whole weekend. Yeah, so I talked to John Bonamigo. That's the head coach at Central Michigan uh, on to this morning as we're taping. It's Monday morning, and he was literally coming back from a cancer checkup in Ann Arbor. He goes through them uh, once every three months. He said he got the all clear. Everything's good, uh, but he was talking about – how his oncologist told him the technology is such uh, with with medicine and science that so ten years ago you'd still have a food you know you still have a food tube stuck in your mouth and he'd still be going through it and here this guy is is leading you know Maction to the biggest upset so far of the early season and a crazy finish it was. The shame of it is that you saying that just now is the first I've heard anybody kind of focus on the Central Michigan feel good part of this. It's all been about the officiating, you know, the crews who have now been suspended and, and people actually calling for Oklahoma State to get the win, that they should take it away from Central Michigan and give it to Oklahoma State uh, because they, weren't, they shouldn't have gotten that playoff. Um, yes, the, official, the officials messed up. We've gotten uh, definitive statements from both the Big 12, uh, who's, who had the replay official, and the MAC, uh, who had the on-field officials, and... Mike Pereira, it was great being in the studio with him on Saturday because nobody knows more about this stuff than him. He was explaining how there's language in the NCAA rulebook that the replay official, in the case of an egregious error, the replay official can intervene even if it's not something that would normally be reviewable. And the Big 12 basically came out and said the same thing, that their replay official should have stepped in and corrected them for this. You know, it was basically – and it wasn't a judgment call. It was a, you know, administering the game wrong. Um, it's unfortunate all that happened, but man, give me a break. You want to reverse the outcome of the game after it was played? I'm not a fan of that. No, you know, I got to watch it obviously way after the fact. This was actually going on when we were doing our open for the Baylor SMU game. So I was, I had somebody text me going, Hey, I got video of this. Do you want to, do you want to tweet it out? I was like, I saw that at halftime. I had no idea what it you know, what it unfolded. And then I watched it again, the last five minutes of the game, uh, last night. Cause I had actually DVR my games and that game ran into ours. So it was, uh, it was amazing. Bonamigo told me actually that the guy who, who, not the guy who caught and pitched the ball off the guy who scored 
said it was kind of a missed assignment. He shouldn't have been there. So somebody else probably was supposed to be there, but not that guy. So it was actually drawn up that way? That's the play? Yeah, and he said he said Cooper Rush has the arm to get there if need be from that from that distance, a quarterback, but he said that was that's one of the design plays. There was a receiver, and I'm blanking on his name. Uh, as I said, I didn't watch the game, but uh, who had a, who had their their best uh, receiver? He said he was open on a seam where he goes. I think if we hit that throw, I think he's scoring either way. So he said, you know, teams are so conditioned to guard the goal line that it leaves you with some space underneath, and you can exploit it. And so. Basically, you you can design it up to a certain point, and then he goes, you know, once the ball's up in the air, it's kind of go play ball. And, you know, there are two guys, you know, Jesse, whatever his name is, I'm I'm sorry, I don't have his name in front of me. The guy who caught and pitched it, you know, made an awesome play. And then the guy who probably wasn't supposed to be in that spot, you know, it was, you know, he he delivered. So um, one of them. It was an amazing play, um, whether or not it should have been allowed or not. I should mention, by the way, after it happened in the green room, Coach Wanstead was all fired up about how poorly Oklahoma State defended it. And he's explaining how when he was a coach, they would teach their kids, you know, if you're defending the Hail Mary, to box out like a basketball player. And then he proceeds to demonstrate it on me without any warning. He literally (laughs) gets up, like, on me. Uh, and starts bumping me like you like you would if you were you know boxing out on a rebound. I it was uh, amusing to say the least. Uh, you know I think that it's unfortunate for Oklahoma State that that happened, but I think it's a real slippery slope. And we talked about this last year with the Miami Duke situation where you know people wanted to reverse the outcome of that one, which is different by the way than this situation because ultimately that was a judgment call about whether his knee was down. Do you um, think this is going to be? I mean. You think this will be the, the play everybody kind of talks about? Like, what what positive comes out of it from an officiating standpoint to go forward? Well, here's what I well here's what I would be curious about, but we'll never know. You know, the SEC and the ACC this year instituted centralized replay, you know, where they have a command center that's watching all the games and can can intervene from afar. The Big Twelve does not, and so this was somehow the same replay official who missed the targeting call on a. On uh, Tory Hunter last week in Notre Dame, Texas, blew this too. So it's still a guy up in the booth where I just I think that that's so quaint. And I would be I would love to know if this had happened with an ACC or SEC game whether they would have had the kind of with that detached viewpoint had the good sense and timing to intervene. And so you know I think that's where the Big Twelve should be headed with this. You should this is a case where you should uh, upgrade your technology in terms of the on field guys. You know, I get it. You have to send a statement. You have to punish them in some way, so you suspend them. But honestly, like, if we really think about it, what good does suspending officials do? You know, you suspend a player for misconduct. You suspend a, uh, uh, an official for making a mistake, and it's like, okay, he learned his lesson, right? He'll never – the next time he officiates a game where the team tries to throw it away with four seconds left and gets called for intentional grounding, he'll know not to give them an untimed down. It'll probably never happen again in the whole in his whole career. Yeah, I mean, but it's a, it's a serious, you know, you sit down on both crews or whatever, but it was, I don't know. You would think that with all these experts in it, they would get it right, you know, eventually. What, what did they huddle for? Five minutes, ten I minutes? I think we're both frustrated, as are a lot of people, that college 
football officiating is still a, basically a part-time job. It's not overseen by the NCAA. It's overseen by the individual conferences. There's so much at stake in these games. Who knows if Oklahoma State would go on to be a playoff contender, but if they were, and this game cost them that, I mean, not just the that's not just the 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 you know the glory of going to the playoff. Like I'm sure coaches will miss out on bonuses, and the school will miss out on untold uh, dollars of exposure, all because uh, you know a bunch of guys who do this on the side blew the the call. Uh, you know, I think it's long past time. There's far enough money in college sports at the Power Five level to invest in actual full-time, well-monitored officiating. You know, this is different to me, though, than like some of the other mistakes you see. Like if, if when if this is a play where it's uh, was his knee down, it's kind of like close or targeting where, yeah, we think it's this way or whatever. This just came back to just not knowing the rule. Right. Like which to me is way more egregious than a judgment thing. No, I, I can't excuse it. They should know the rule. That's that's inexcusable. But when you ask what's going to come out of it, I don't think much of anything in the short term, only if they're willing to. Um, and, and by the way, the, the same thing, Miami Duke, uh, you know, I remember talking to David Cutcliffe the next day. He was he was calling for change and it happened. That play is what, you know, they had talked about centralized replay a little bit in the past, but that play uh, is the one that that made these conferences go ahead and do it. A, uh, I think we should uh, give ourselves a little bit of a pat on the back. We spent much of the summer telling people, watch out for Louisville and watch out for Lamar Jackson. Well, through two games, no player in the country has had a more dominant start to his season than Lamar Jackson. 13 touchdowns in two games, 610 yards of offense against Syracuse. Of course, he takes a big step up this week when he plays Florida State, uh, and I feel like I don't think a guy's Heisman chances you can make or break. I, I don't think you can win the Heisman on the third week of September, but you can lose it. And so I think a lot of people will be tuning in to say, okay, I've heard a lot about this guy. I've seen the highlights. Now I want to see, is he legit? And you can't get any bigger test of that than playing the number two team in the country. Yeah, and the crazy thing was, I mean, that was – a fun game to watch. Now it turned out to be not even close. And if you'd given somebody point spread advice, as I did to one of our colleagues, you, you know, you heard what the hell is wrong with Syracuse's defense repeatedly. But you know what? They had about 150 to 200 yards worth of receiving drops in Louisville. It wasn't Absolutely. like it was, it was, it was awful. Now at this point of the year, we should almost give out like a September Heisman Award and call it like the the, the Denard Robinson. Geno Smith, Denard Robinson Memorial, Tate Forcier Memorial Heisman. Well, not Memorial. No one's died, yeah. but um, but yeah. So I can't wait to see how he does against FSU. By the way, some little bit of news that'll be out by the time it's out. Jimbo Fisher said Derwin James, who's their best player on defense, uh, is having his knee worked on. It's not ACL damage, but it doesn't look promising that he would play uh anytime soon and i don't think don't expect to see him out for the louisville game so that would be a big blow because he's kind of the x-factor guy he can do a lot of everything for them so look if louisville's receivers step up i think this could be a really really interesting game because he puts so much pressure on a defense with what he can do and they do have a lot of speed and talent around him right yeah, it, this is a game where we'll find out. I mean, the guy who could really steal the show is Demarcus Walker from from Florida State. You know, he had the huge opening night game 
against Ole Miss. And if he ends up, if you're going to contain Lamar Jackson, you're going to have to get great pressure from your defensive ends, and and he could certainly do that. He's certainly an All-America caliber player. The other side of it is I don't have any way to gauge how Louisville's defense will do against uh, DeAndre Francois, Dalvin Cook, and all of those guys. It's it's interesting. It's a game that going into the season, you're like, oh, you know, that that's worth noting on those team schedules. I would not have guessed that two weeks into the season it would become such a big, it would be two top ten teams and game days going and all that. Yeah, I mean, look, it's weird because it just feels they haven't beaten really anybody. You know, I thought Eric Dungy looked pretty good at times on Friday night against that defense, which, by the way, has had a reputation last year of giving up a lot of big plays. Um, I can't wait for this weekend. I really can't. Oh, it's a great weekend. Uh, I will be at one of the big games, Ohio State, Oklahoma, which, you know, I wrote about this on Monday. You could have looked at this week before the – like I said, Florida State-Louisville snuck up on most people. But if you looked at this week before the season, you would have said, wow, there's a lot of big games that week. Ole Miss – Alabama-Ole Miss, the rematch or the second rematch, if you will. Ohio State going to Oklahoma, great intersectional game. Uh, USC going to Stanford, uh, Oregon-Nebraska. Well, except for that last one, all the games I just mentioned, one of the teams already has a loss. And yet, I don't think those games are any less... I think Oklahoma having a loss does not diminish the Ohio State-Oklahoma game in any way because, first of all, Oklahoma is going to be going to this game desperate. They absolutely cannot afford a second loss this early in the season if they're going to reach the playoff. And then Ohio State's defense has been so impressive in the first two games, but it's a big step up from Bowling Green and Tulsa to Oklahoma. So I'm still fascinated about that game. I don't know about you. I'm, no, I'm interested. I'm not. I, I, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm the game I'm most curious about is that FSU game. I'm also, curious, you know, like we should probably get ahead of ourselves here because I feel like we could talk about this in the next podcast. Um, but I am curious about Notre Dame, Michigan State as well. Oh, how did I leave? That? I'm sorry for leaving that off in the first place. Those are two top twenty teams as well. Yeah, Notre Dame had a, had more bad injury news for Sean Crawford. He's their terrific young cornerback. He's out again for the season after what happened to him last year. And so it's questions how well they'll be in coverage. I'm not sure if Michigan State can exploit it. And the Spartans got really good news over uh, uh, over the weekend with Ed Davis, their six-year linebacker, who's their most dynamic athlete at linebacker. He's now back, and they're going to ease him back in, according to the coaches I talked to there. So, Well, we really don't know anything about Michigan State yet. They played one game, and it was against Furman. So. This yeah. will be um, this will be the the, the the game where we find out about them. Can we jump back to last week to last yeah. one thing. There's a question I have, and it's about my my preseason national title pick as well as my Heisman pick. It's more about the team itself, though. Uh, Clemson has looked really underwhelming in two weeks. I kind of gave them a pass in the first game when they played at Auburn. Auburn's still got plenty of athletes, and it's a tough place to play. And it's the opener. They won, but. Now they looked really shaky, um, especially offensively against Troy. And, you know, they had a bunch of drop passes. If you look at yards per play, this team is not even in the top 100 in the country. And this was supposed to be, you know, the best offense in the country with everybody back. And they also get, you know, Mike Williams back, who's their best receiver. And it's not clicking. Should anybody panic? Who should have less faith in their preseason playoff pick right now? You with Clemson or me with TCU? 
You at TCU. Yeah, they already have the L, so I don't think there's any question. Also, that defense that I've been hyping up never really came to pass, although that was a great game the other night. Uh, the Clemson thing is is bizarre, to say the least. It's not like— You picked TCU to win it all? No. I picked them to go to the playoff. To the playoff, yeah. You picked Clemson to win it all. That a I lot did. of people picked Clemson to win it all. They I were in the game last year. They're still my pick. I think. I think they're going to get really. It. You. You. You think? Yeah. Over Alabama at this moment. Yes. Yes. I, Deshaun Watson didn't forget how to play. I mean, they had eight drop passes according to one of their coaches uh, over the weekend. They will focus in a little bit. I think you know they will settle down. The stuff I like. Dexter Lawrence, who's their huge recruit at defensive tackle, he has been as advertised. I mean, he was a, he's been a big force in the first two weeks. I think those young players will step up on the defensive side. So I still like them, even though uh, Louisville looks, you know, looks like what you and I both thought they'd be. And obviously Florida State's still talented. I'm still going. I'm not giving up on you, Clemson. Well, in the ACC, Louisville still has to prove it. You know, I'm not going to come out here and say, oh, they're definitely going to be finished better than Clemson after Clemson's had much more recent success. And I do think that, theoretically at least, the offensive issue should be correctable because this is not a situation where, uh, well, for instance, with Ohio State last year, you never knew, you know, they brought back so much, but you never knew for sure, okay, who's going to be their new big player receivers. You know, there were some questions going into the season about, guys who were lost Clemson lost two offensive linemen and that's about it I mean they have Deshaun Watson Wayne Gallman Artavis Scott Hunter Renfro Mike Williams back in the mix Jordan Leggett it there's no question they are loaded on offense now you lose two offensive linemen oftentimes we've seen offenses get derailed because their offensive line just is not able to um, gel but it's two games into the season so I definitely think it's correctable but, uh, yeah, I think you have to be concerned. One game is one thing. Two games is, is a trend. Yeah, we'll see. I, I, I give them – I think they're – I give them the benefit of the doubt because of what they did last year and because of who they have personal-wise. Hey, speaking of nitpicking, good – nitpicking wins, right? What do you think about Nick Saban coming out after a blowout win over Western Kentucky and saying it's the most disappointed he's ever been in a win? And uh, somebody asked about – you know, what about the argument? He was arguments he was having with Lane Kiffin on the sideline. He said it's not an argument, it's an ass chewing. I don't think Nick Saban goes into these press conferences and does anything without a secret plan behind it. He's using the media. Look, it wasn't just him. Ryan Anderson, you know, as a senior linebacker there, echoed those comments that he didn't talk about an ass chewing, but he you know, the other stuff. I mean, they've just beaten USC and Western Kentucky. Not like those are two FCS teams and beat them by a combined ninety to sixteen. This is the reason why Nick Saban is the – this is one of the reasons why Nick Saban's the best coach in college football history and why they're on this run. He will not allow any thoughts of complacency to, to creep in, and he's constantly sending messages. He uses the media as well as any, any coach I can think of. Yeah, there's – I think it's – okay. He knows they're going to be getting lots and lots of acclaim. They're the number one team in the country. They've blown out the first two teams they've played. Going on the road now to face a team that's beaten them the last two years. This was his way of you got you know making sure they don't get complacent, of saying you know you're 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 not as good as people are saying you are, and so forth. You know he wants them. I don't think I don't I can't imagine they would overlook Ole Miss. But no, they beat them the, the two years in a row. I can't see how. No. 
reason they would overlook him. He he just wants to curb the the praise that they're getting, the widespread praise that they're getting. <clears throat> Speaking of Alabama and the SEC, so I noticed something interesting in the new AP poll. Alabama's number one. Do you know what ranking the next highest SEC team is? Is it Arkansas? I know I know where Georgia and A and M are sixteen and seventeen. Yeah, the second highest ranked SEC team is Tennessee at number fifteen. When's the last time the SEC, you know, basically did not have two teams in the top fourteen or even the top ten, no less? I, I mean, remember about fifteen years ago they didn't have anybody in the top ten. Somebody did tweet at me that they had a couple weeks last week, last year, where they only had one in the top ten. But I mean, there were seasons recently where, you know, there was a year where I remember going into the LSU Arkansas game on Thanksgiving weekend. LSU, Alabama, and Arkansas were one, two, three in the country. Um, and of course, there was. And then the next year, I believe they had like six of the top ten teams uh, going into the postseason, or maybe going to the SEC championship. Now, does this mean the conference stinks all of a sudden? No. But what I think it says, because I feel the same way, is there's just no consensus on who the next best team is after Alabama. Tennessee rebounded nicely against Virginia Tech the other night, um, when that ended up winning that game by three touchdowns. And then Arkansas, we just mentioned in passing, but I think that was a huge win uh, for Brett Bielma's team. Whether or not TCU turns out to be certainly what I thought they were going to be or what most people thought they were going to be, that stayed won 14 straight home games, uh, and they it sure looked like they were about to that Arkansas was about to blow it after holding TCU's offense in check for three quarters. Uh, TCU came alive in the fourth quarter and went up 28-20, but Arkansas came back. The trick play on the two point conversion and won in double overtime. I just don't. I feel like those are the not. I feel like Arkansas would not have won that game in Brett Bielema's first three seasons. They never seemed to win the overtime, close-call uh, close call type games like that. I think a little of this of why people are kind of muted on their expectations of some of these traditionally really good uh, SEC schools outside of Alabama. Alabama gets a pass or gets a benefit of the doubt because Nick Saban's there. Now, obviously, they, you know, they look like they have some stuff figured out on offense. Whereas you look at Tennessee, Georgia, uh, I would certainly put LSU in there. And those are three schools that, while they you know have some good personnel, people are not sure what to make of their offenses yet. I mean, Georgia really struggled against a awful FCS program, barely beat them. Uh, Tennessee, you know, they got five turnovers against Virginia Tech, but they, you know, it's like I think people are not sure. They know Josh Dobbs can make some plays. They just not sold on the Vols' passing game. Obviously, LSU is the same way. Danny Etling goes six for 14 with an interception and a touchdown, and they think he's, you know, like their own Brett Favre or something. <laughs> it was like that's how desperate they are for something good to happen. So I think that's why, uh, you know, in the pollsters, that carries over to them, I really think. You know, look, Tennessee has got some really bad news over the weekend. Darren Kirkland is arguably, you know, as good a linebacker as they have. I know people know more about J- Jalen Rees-Maven, but this guy is a they thought it was going to be a breakout year for him. He's their leading tackler, high ankle sprain. He's definitely out for this week. But next week, the schedule really heats up. It's Florida at Georgia at A&M and then Alabama. Um, I, you know, I'm not from what I'm hearing. It could be more than just this weekend where he's out with that ankle sprain. So so we'll see. I mean, especially when you're counting so much on a defense when your offense has been so iffy. 
I'm totally off the Tennessee bandwagon at this point. Uh, you ever on it? Yeah, they were number nine in my preseason poll. They may still win the East, but this idea that maybe they were going to sneak up and contend with Alabama, not happening. Because, like you said, that game the other night, Virginia Tech fumbled five times, lost five fumbles. That's that's insane. Uh, if you look at the offensive stats, Tennessee actually very modest yards per play. Josh Dobbs threw three touchdowns, but he only threw for 91 yards. He did have a good running game. It just seems like they're going to try to make it through the season here and win in spite of Josh Dobbs's uh, lack of, of not being a great passer. A lot of these SEC teams are trying to do that right now because there just aren't that many great quarterbacks in the conference. A lot of great defensive players. So I would say if you ask me who's going to be the second best, who's going to be the second highest ranked SEC team by season's end, I think I'd actually say Texas A&M. Uh, that's bad. I mean, look, I was pushing them a little bit before the start of the year after being down there. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll know a lot more about them too. They, I'm not saying you beat Auburn at home and all of a sudden you're anointed as a, as a great team, but I think that would be a big step for them as well. Just cause it's a, you know, it's a road win. It's a place they've lost before. And maybe I shouldn't be going out on that limb cause they certainly haven't proved it the last few years. You got to get on some limbs. You got to get on some limb. And I did. They're very, very talented. They're very good on defense. And Trevor Knight may not win the Heisman by any means, but I have more faith in him than I do in Josh Dobbs. And I do in an LSU quarterback who looked good for a few series against an FCS team. Um, Florida, I guess we didn't mention Florida. They they housed Kentucky, but I, most people seem to think that speaks more to the rough shape Kentucky's in uh, and, and what a hot seat Mark Stoops is on than what a great performance it was for Florida. Um, yeah. I was going to ask you something, and it just slipped my mind when you went down the Florida road. Hey, real quick, I want to mention there were a lot of – once again, the Pac-12's best games get completely lost because they are going on at 2 in the morning Eastern. But if you were still up and watching Saturday night, you saw you saw a player score eight touchdowns in a football game. It's Kalen Balaj from Arizona State. He tied the NCAA record uh, in a – very high-scoring, no-defense game against uh, Texas Tech. That was a nice win for ASU, certainly. Um, Boise State survives against Washington State when Mike Leach inexplicably lets the clock run down to almost none before calling his t- last time out. And a little love for San Diego State, for Donnell Pumphrey, the best running back nobody's ever heard of, 281 yards the other night against Cal. I put him on my Heisman top five. I realize that's not realistic. I think the guy I, just broke Marshall Fox school career rushing record. I think I called that almost to the yardage that what he was going to do against Cal. Although probably most people would have if they watched that Hawaii game. But. Right. Oh, my gosh. Some of the running backs that are playing Cal this year, like Christian McCaffrey and Royce Freeman, the numbers they're going to put up. Yeah, and Cal has enough offense to keep it into a shootout, which means those guys may play four quarters. It's not like they don't have any firepower, so you'll blow them off the field 45 to 10. Uh, so that could keep it very, very interesting. So before we wrap up, you mentioned there was a story you wanted to tell. Oh, yeah. So over the weekend, you know, it's the 15th anniversary of 9-11. And I had uh, tweeted out on Sunday morning just, you know, some recollections of, of that. I lived in New York City through it. I remember uh, going with some of my ESPN magazine colleagues. We were, like, moved from our office 
which was near the Empire State Building, to another office about 10 blocks away just because it was an ESPN office and you know, they're trying to figure out what was going on. Let me ask you, so you were not in New York at the time. No, I had lived in New York that one about for about six months right after college. But at that point, I was down in Atlanta uh, working for CNNSI. It was still, you know, obviously not anywhere remotely as scary as being in New York. But I remember in that morning uh, when everything was still, you know, so confusing and nobody had any idea what was going on other than the country was under attack. Uh, we were concerned. They sent us home. We thought CNN, the CNN Center could theoretically be an international target. We didn't know. So um, anyway, back that, to your experience. Yeah, so that's – I mean we were near the Empire State Building. At one point I thought we had heard that there were like seven planes still up in the air. I'm like, well, the Empire State Building was a target. Well, the place they moved us to uh, was near the UN and you would have thought that would have been a target. But the way the day began was pretty, was was especially odd and surreal. Uh, I was at the gym bef- you know, well before you know 9 a.m. I think it was 8 a.m. and – I thought I heard a radio uh, call, uh, somebody break into the local radio saying, uh, I thought they said a small plane had hit the Empire State Building. And to be honest, I didn't, uh, had hit the uh, World Trade Center. I didn't really think much of it because I was like, oh, it's just some debris. I didn't, you know, just couldn't grasp the magnitude of it. You know, finished my workout, went, went into the office, and my colleague, Ryan Hawkinsmith, who now runs ESPN's college football coverage on ESPN.com, was sitting up and he was looking at the Today Show on TV. Well, Ryan is from Pennsylvania and he and I were actually renting a car that morning. We're going to walk over to the National Car Rental place three blocks away, go pick up a rent a car and drive to Pennsylvania where we were trying to interview a man who'd served a year and a day in a federal prison for his, you know, role in the first World Trade Center attack, which happened about a decade earlier, um, and that that man's son was a football player at the University of Georgia, was their starting running back, and the idea, the coincidence that this happened on that was was happening, just was literally mind boggling to us. You know, that here's the day we're gonna, of all days we're going to do this, and this is happening. So, you know, from there, your head is spinning. Um, it was crazy. We ended up holding, you know, the story for over a year, um, for a lot of reasons, but it was just a very, very surreal day. And you have so many thoughts that come back. I remember, um, you know, just walking all over New York with some of my colleagues to go into different hospitals, trying to donate blood. Um, and the only kind of blood, you know, at that point there were so many long lines for people trying to do the same, that there's a certain rare type of blood that was about the only thing that they were looking for. Um, but you know, for, for that whole week, I think especially, you know, it just, it felt like you were living in a movie because you'd walk around. There weren't a lot of people on the streets. The air was covered, you know, with soot, you know, it was heavy air the whole time. Uh, and you'd see people on the street and you just felt like a bond with them. You know, in a way that you, especially in New York City, like if you're in New York City, you rarely make eye contact with other people. You know, you live there. And just to be able to walk around and kind of acknowledge people um, was different. And I thought, you know, if you ever saw like a firefighter or a policeman, your just level of gratitude to them was was off the charts. I remember we, you know, at the end of the night, you know, there was a lot of people who were stuck in the city 
you know, we ended up at some bar, bars were packed and, you know, there was a, there was a firefighter in there. I mean, and you know, like these guys are heroes for what they did and just, you know, I, I felt like our, at that time, like we were never closer as a country than, than we were then. And it's kind of, it's kind of sad to see how things have deteriorated and gotten so divisive, you know, you know, since then. It's true. It's true. And, you know, people always have, they've never lived in New York, have this perception that it's this, you know, completely rough and tumble. Everybody's mean to each other city. Well, certainly you, you have moments of that. There's no question about that. Uh, the get out of my way moments, but when when adversity strikes, you know, people are very friendly. People are there's a you know kind of a coming together. I, I wasn't there yet, but you remember you were you there during the blackout? Uh, the Niagara Mohawk blackout. Yeah, I was not. I was out here. My whole family was there, and I remember hearing stories of how a hotel, like the hotel where they were staying at, basically you know, was just giving away food and giving away stuff to anybody who went there and how people bonded together. And, you know, it was very cool to hear a lot of those stories about people who went out of their way and were so generous to try to help other people. Yeah, I I remember that being uh, like that. Whenever there was a threat of a hurricane or people just, you know, they come together. And But your story is crazy, and I've heard it before, but and by the way, you didn't say his name. The Georgia running back, people of a certain age will remember, Musa Smith. He was the uh, he was the starting running starting back. Starting running back on Mark Rick's first SEC championship team. Yeah, and it was, um, you know, and, and we should say this: Musa did not have any involvement. You know, his his father had been. Uh, I think he, you know, it's a long story. If people want to go back and look at the ESPN magazine story, they can find it. We believe me, we had we had a lot of internal discussion about whether running the story. I mean, in my opinion, I was not, you know, because we had reported it before a lot. We've done a lot of reporting before all this ever happened. Um, you know, I was not in favor of running the story even after, you know, a year later. Um, but that decision happened way above my pay grade. So it was um, it was just a very, very the whole thing was surreal. I just remember, you know, even days after we would constantly have these these um uh, I don't call them like they were bomb threats and we'd have to evacuate the building, walk down seven flights. I mean, it would happen like multiple times a day because we were so close to the empire state building. And that was, that was a common thing. You'd, you'd hear a call, you get calls from people like who, you knew. I remember my older brother, one of his best friends worked in the, in the towers and unfortunately he passed away and you, you get calls from people going, Hey, do you remember so-and-so or you met somebody or you knew somebody that, you know, you couldn't, you know, they couldn't get a hold of them. Like one of the people, one of the guys who worked in our office, Kieran Darcy was a younger guy in 23. I think it was his first job. His dad worked in the towers and sadly, you know, never came home, you know, and just, you know, your just heart goes out to so many people there who are, who have a connection to it. Well, the saying we hear every year on Island is never forget. And it's, uh, Thanks to stories like that, which I'm sure you're going to be telling for the rest of your life, we can make sure that uh, doesn't happen. Because I got to tell you, there was a cover story on USA Today on Friday, the the first graph of which blew my mind, which is this year the uh, it was the first time where the where high school freshman was not alive for nine for nine eleven. So for the as the quote from the teacher was, "It's history to them, just like Pearl Harbor." Hard to believe at this point. <laughs> That that's yeah. possible, but it is. 
yeah, it's just, I mean, for so much of my lifetime, I never really, there was never, I mean, you hear this with older people, I'm obviously older than you, where it's like, what, what moment was there where you kind of remember where you were, it was so big. And I guess, thankfully, I, uh, you know, for a long time in my life, I never had that where it was just that, I mean, you remember stuff. Like I remember where I was when I heard Len Bias died. You know, I remember, you know, like there's certain things that are like big sports tragedies that maybe resonate, but obviously nothing on that magnitude. And then, you know, obviously, you know, everybody has their own story of what was going through their minds and their lives when, when that all happened. And like I said, I, I just, uh, you know, whenever I see some special or something on it, it just makes me stop and watch it. I just, I'm so, so, uh, compelled to look at it. How the heck am I supposed to end the podcast now? Uh, you know, I don't know, Steve. How I, do I bring this back to the usual uh, conversation? I guess I'll just abruptly do it. As always, if you enjoy the Audible, you should subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And tell 10 of your friends while you're at it. And in the next podcast, we will answer your emails. So please send those to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.